Welcome to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. Are we, as humans, defined by nature or nurture? Fifty years ago, the discovery of the structure of DNA scored a victory in this argument for genes. Yet, in February of 2001, the revelation that there are just 30,000 genes in the human genome and not the 100,000 long assumed to be what we carried gave the edge to the environment. Matt Ridley, the author of Genome, published in 2000, has now written Nature via Nurture, Genes, Experience, and What Makes Us Human. Ridley argues that genes are enablers rather than constrictors and are continually shaped by everyday life. Ridley asserts that genes direct the construction of the body and the brain in the womb, but then they set about dismantling and rebuilding what they have made almost at once in response to experience. They are both the cause and consequence of our actions. For example, gene FOXP2 is crucial to the grasp of language. But even with this gene, learning to talk requires exposure to speech during the first 13 years of life. And a gene called MAOA makes people more prone to antisocial and criminal behavior, but only if they have experienced abuse as children. I spoke with Matt Ridley from his home near London, England, and began by asking him to define the difference between nature and nurture. Well, of course, part of my argument is that actually it's very different to find the difference between them. But, I mean, traditionally what we thought we were looking at was things that you inherited and things that you acquired. That You inherit your nature and you acquire your nurture during your life. And that distinction became synonymous with the idea of genes as something you inherit and nurture as something you acquire during your life. So, you know, you acquire your, the fact that you speak English or whatever, but you are born with some kind of capacity to be able to learn to speak. However, part of my argument is that this simple mapping of, of genes as nature and environment as nurture uh, is actually very misleading because, uh, in fact, genes are sensitive to the environment and some nurture effects, some, as it were, external effects on the organism do not necessarily lend themselves to being changed later in life. So the idea that nurture is temporary while nature is permanent is also wrong. Well, what are some of those that do not lend themselves to being changed later in life? Well, a number of things happen to us early in our lives, which could be called formative experiences. Uh, those experiences that we have early in life and that kind of fix us. Thereafter, we're kind of stuck with them. And we don't know uh, in detail a lot of them, but it's, it turns out that some of the nutritional effect on our mothers when we're in the womb can impact the way we grow up and can even impact our propensity for heart disease later in life. And then, for example, which, uh, uh, language you speak is obviously something that you acquire during your youth, and it doesn't go away in the sense that once you've acquired it, you're very good at it and you find it very hard to forget it, whereas you find it comparatively hard as an adult to learn a new language. How about food preferences? You mentioned that as something that's acquired. 
And I mean food preferences of the individual as opposed to what you just mentioned, the mother's nutrition when the child is in the womb. Yes, I think it seems to be clear that children are fairly open-minded about which foods they'll like. Uh, and they're very sensitive to hints from other children and from parents about what tastes nice and what doesn't. Obviously, as small children, they don't like strong-tasting things, and that's probably a sensible thing because you wouldn't want to expose your growing body to you know, things that might be toxic or whatever. So they have a general tendency towards bland foods. But apart from that, if you catch them early and give them the right experience, they will acquire a sort of food preference that doesn't leave them and that's quite hard to change. And you see this in the fact that on the whole, people are very conservative about food. It's only when they become an adult that they're prepared to experiment and to start to eat Chinese food or Indian food or whatever it happens to be. Another example is ability to cope with heat, curiously. This seems to be something that is acquired in the sense that if you're brought up in a hot climate, you on the whole are pretty comfortable with heat and part of the reason is that you have a higher density of sweat pores on your skin whereas if you're brought up in a temperate or cool climate and and you don't ever meet much in the way of, of great heat then you tend to develop fewer sweat pores and this doesn't seem to be a genetic phenomenon clearly there are probably differences between the races in this respect but it on the whole it's something that you acquire so the development of the sweat pores is an adaptive circumstance in the human body Well, yes, it certainly looks like the human body is designed to develop a certain number of sweat pores on the skin and to do so in response to what kind of climate that the young human being is being brought up in. So in that sense, it's clearly an adaptive thing uh, to adapt during your life to the kind of climate that your body expects you to live in. It didn't expect us, after all, because these systems were designed in the Stone Age, to suddenly up sticks uh, from Canada and move to uh, Florida. So you can throw the system a curveball, as it were. There's another point that you bring up that I find fascinating, and that's the sense of humor. That seems more adaptive than uh, inheritable. It's hard, of course, to pin down how you measure someone's sense of humor. But one way that scientists have discovered is to show them cartoons and say, do you find that very funny, quite funny, not funny at all, you know, that kind of thing. You can imagine uh, going through a, a pack of cartoons and ticking a questionnaire. And if you do this with twins who've been raised apart as opposed to twins who've been raised in the same family or indeed in adoptive animals been adopted into different um, families um, then what you find is that uh, on the whole sense of humor doesn't seem to go with inheritance it seems to go with who you've been brought up amongst the minnesota twin studies where they examined identical twins that were separated at birth and brought together again in a middle to late adulthood seemed to provide a different body of knowledge than what you're presenting in your book nature via nurture how would you distinguish between those well i don't think what i'm saying is incompatible with the results of the minnesota twin studies But they are, the Minnesota twin studies and indeed other twin studies that have followed them in the 80s and 90s are very important in, for once and for all, knocking on the head the idea that your personality is purely the product of your upbringing and that genes have nothing to do with it. Because they did show that particularly personality is something that, however you measure it, turns out to be very strongly heritable and owe very little to family background. So if you're an extrovert, it's because of that's the way you are, not because that's the way you are treated by the family. However, this is quite compatible with the idea that genes are 
open to experience because we don't know what the genes of extroversion are, but almost certainly they are going to turn out to be genes which cause you to respond in a certain and predictable way to a particular kind of upbringing. And probably it doesn't matter the details of that upbringing. That's what we're learning from the twin studies. It doesn't, you know, as long as you're in a pretty comfortable, pretty relaxed family, you're going to be okay. Whereas if you're brought up an orphan, then your personality is going to be affected. But from that upbringing, your genes will extract enough experience to set your brain up in such a way that you are an extroverted person. And if it doesn't have that upbringing, it can't do it. So it's quite possible for these Minnesota twin studies and others to find a strong heritability in our society for things like personality and not to be proving that environment is not important. There's a simple analogy which I think gets this across quite nicely, and that's short sight or myopia. Clearly, short sight is genetic in the sense that in our society, it's very highly heritable. I'm short-sighted, and the reason for that is because I've inherited short-sighted genes I think from my mother, because she's short-sighted. You might say, well, that's all there is to it. But in fact, we know from societies where there's low literacy that you can have those particular short-sighted mutations in your genes and not become short-sighted unless you learn to read books as a child and spend a lot of time focusing on things that are close. So what the genes are doing is causing you to respond to the experience of learning to read in a way that alters your vision. One of the ideas that I obtained from your book is the concept that the genes can be developed under certain forms of nurture. And if that nurture is not there, then the genes are not developed to their fullest potential or at all. I think what we've learned is that learning itself is in some sense a genetic process. It's not genetic in the sense that you inherit the content of of your learning, but it is genetic in the sense that the capacity to acquire knowledge from the environment does require you to switch genes on and off during development. Now, there's a very nice example of this that, that we can see happening all around us, which is language. When a child reaches roughly the age of three, it starts to acquire words and to slot those words into some kind of innate structure in its head that enables it to understand which ones are noun and which ones are verb and so on. That apparently is a process that does require some kind of innate knowledge to spring to it. And it does so ferociously and with a tremendous appetite for 10 or more years. The number of new words that a child acquires each day is a very, very rapid rate of learning. Um, And at the end of that period, it kind of stops. We're sort of stuck with the vocabulary and the Uh, and the grammar that we've acquired during that formative period. Now, sure, we can learn more, and we learn new words as adults uh, a lot, but at nothing like the rate that we were acquiring them when we were children. But if you then take a child, as has been done unintentionally but very cruelly, and you place it in an environment where it does not hear speech during those formative years, what you end up with is a child that thereafter simply cannot acquire language easily or fluently. Um, It's missed the so-called critical period, and it's simply not able, I'm saying it because I'm trying to avoid saying he or she, but uh, he or she is is simply not capable of understanding how to handle speech and grammar. Those genes that make it possible to speak have not been able to develop in isolation. And this is a child who has not been exposed to language up to the teenage years. 
That's right. The classic case, there are a number of others, some of which are better documented than others, but there was a girl called Jeannie who was discovered in the early 1970s in Los Angeles where she'd been kept a virtual prisoner in a small room by her blind mother and her somewhat sort of paranoid father. She had literally, you know, for most of the hours of the day, been left entirely on her own and never spoken to. She made a fairly remarkable recovery from all the other effects of her grotesque imprisonment, but she did not learn to handle language properly. She couldn't, for example, turn a question round to make it into a statement. In other words, if you say, how are you today, she wouldn't be able to say, I am well. She would say, am I well, or something. Do you see what I mean? So there are whole aspects of using language that she simply had enormous difficulty with for the rest of her life because she'd missed the critical period. I'd like to take a moment and say that we're talking with Matt Ridley from his home in the United Kingdom. Matt is the author of a recent book called Nature Via Nurture, Genes, Experience, and What Makes Us Human. You're listening to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. Matt, when we talk about inheriting, we presume, or I presume, that what we inherit comes directly from our parents in that we're most like our mother and father. But to what extent is what the genes that are visible or noticeable in any given person come from many generations back as opposed to uh, generations closer like the uh, mother or father? Well, you get genes directly from your mother or father, but they got a mixture of genes from their parents who got a mixture of genes from their parents and so on. So a lot of genes are so-called recessive. In other words, they don't necessarily express themselves if there's a so-called stronger version, a more dominant version of of the gene uh, also present in the individual. Remember, we have two copies of, of most genes. So it's quite possible for something to be latent in your parents and indeed possibly in your grandparents, but to suddenly appear in you because perhaps it's been inherited also from your other parents. In that sense, there is a gene pool which is constantly, perhaps instead of a gene pool, perhaps I should use the analogy of a pack of cards. You're dealt a hand of cards from the deck, if you like, um, in every generation. And it's a slightly different hand in every generation, but you're drawing on the same pool as everybody else because you only have to go back four or five generations to find that you and I are sharing great-grandparents quite easily. So if you go back... 30 generations to uh, a thousand years ago, you find that you and I have both got a billion ancestors alive in the same generation. Now, there weren't even a billion people on the planet at that point. So what that means is you and I share a huge number of common ancestors from just 30 generations ago. And in that sense, it's the same pack of cards which is being sort of dealt out to each of us into different hands. Let's apply what you've just said to skin color and what we call races. How does that work in terms of what people learn about other races and the visual differences in people? We know that there are genetic differences between people that affect appearance and skin color. And we also know that this process is affected by multiple genes because you don't get this simple sort of roll of the dice phenomenon where they are either black or white. If a black person mates with a white person, you get a blended mixture. You get a brown person, essentially. So in that sense, we know there are genes affecting skin color. 
What's very interesting and what had not been expected until we began to look at people's genes, really from the 1960s onward, is that we would find that race is skin deep. Now, what I mean by that is that while there are genetic differences that affect things like skin color, a lot of the rest of the genetic differences between two individuals of different races are essentially very similar to the genetic differences you find between two individuals of the same race. The extra genetic variation that's thrown in by them being of different races is really very small. It's something like 15%. So you and I have a different hand of card in genetic terms. You and I and someone of a different race, I actually don't know whether you're the same race as me, but assuming that we are, you and I and someone of a different race would also have a similarly different pack of cards, genetically speaking, with a slight few extra differences that were thrown in which differentiate us racially. Can you talk about the extent uh, that you find racism to be genetic? Racism is something that we don't know an awful lot about, but there is a very interesting recent study by Robert Kurtzban at University of California, Santa Barbara, which I think does shed light on where it comes from. And it goes to the argument of whether racism is, in a sense, natural and automatic, or whether it's, in another sense, something that we've simply acquired from our society. Now, it's, it's absurd to make this polarization. It's clearly going to be a mixture of those two. But you can say something more interesting about that, which is to say, if you ask people what they, uh, you know, to identify someone, to make it, you know, how do I know what so-and-so looks like, they will often name three things about them. They will name their sex, their age, and their race. It was a young white woman, or it was a, something like that. Sex and age make sense, Robert Kurtzban argued, in Stone Age terms, because back in those periods, if you needed to identify someone, you know, those would be very helpful things for noticing. But why race? Because back in Africa, as we all were, 180 or 200,000 years ago, we were all the same race, and there wouldn't have been skin color differences between people, so how come we notice them so much? Well, what he's suggesting is that we probably have a somehow inherent or innate capacity to tend to categorize people according to tribe or faction, if you like, and that that has somehow got confused in modern society with race. So it's almost as if we're thinking of people of other skin colors as if they were members of, a, of an opposing tribal faction in our sort of Stone Age heads. Now, if you can superimpose a new definition of whether you're, someone is them or us, whether someone is in your group or another group, then it does so at the expense of race. So people stop noticing race when they notice whether the guy is on his team or on another team. It's a very interesting phenomenon, and I think it's rather a heartening one because it shows us how easy it is to cut across race, although it's not necessarily a good idea to encourage factionalism, so it doesn't necessarily solve the problem. But it seems to me that that's a direct observational um, technique. Just as you describe gender and age in a person, you describe their skin color as a way of identifying them. So that's why I'm wondering where we get into the issue of racism, unless you're bringing it in, is that person with us or against us in a tribal sense? Well, the experiment consists of finding out how people mistake other people. In other words, what mistakes they make, mistaking one person for another. And again, they use age and sex very easily. They'll, they'll confuse two old people or two 
female people or whatever it is with each other quite easily. But you can find that if they're thinking of people on two sides of an argument, they'll confuse people on the same side of the argument, but they won't now confuse people by race. They won't confuse one black man with another black man, for example. Now, I think this is only one study, and I don't think one should read too much into it, but it's a very interesting hint as to how racial awareness, this of course is not racism, this is simply noticing people's races, how it gets into the brain. I'd like to talk about how genes work in job interviews. You made the statement that every job interview is about genetic discrimination. Yes, this was a provocative remark I put in the book in order to make people sit up, because I'm arguing that in a job interview, you're looking at a number of candidates and you're deciding which one to hire. And you're deciding partly on the basis of what they've achieved in life and where they were educated and so on. But if you simply looked at their background and said, this one has the right qualifications on paper, I'm going to ignore everybody else and hire this person, you would be really derelict in your duty because what you should be also doing is saying, yeah, but I don't really like his personality. And I think despite the fact that he's got great degrees, he just didn't come across well in interview. I think the other guy had an unhappy and underprivileged life, but he's actually much brighter. And the reason he hasn't got such good grades is because he didn't get the same chance. Now, as soon as you start arguing that, or you start arguing the personality thing, that I like this guy and I didn't like the other guy, you're immediately discriminating genetically, just as if you were saying, I like black people or white people, or I like male people or female people. I'm not saying that it's wrong to discriminate genetically in that case, when you're discriminating personalities, or when you're making allowances for underprivileged backgrounds. I'm saying it's right to make that genetic discrimination, but it's quite interesting to realize that that's what you're doing, that you're saying, I want to find features of this person's innateness that are good for the job in question, not just the imprint of their experiences. What do you mean, features of this person's innateness? Well, I mean something like personality. I want an outgoing person for this job. I don't want a shy person. The reason I want that is because this person is going to be, I don't know what the phrase is, customer-facing or whatever. Therefore, I like candidate number three, not candidate number two, because he or she smiled a lot and talked a lot and listened a lot, uh, whereas the other one didn't. Those are, to a large degree, innate, those differences between people, in whether you're extrovert or introvert, for example. So then the decision is really much on the part of the interviewer as opposed to the job applicant. The job applicant just presents himself or herself uh, to the interviewers who then make the decision. I suppose there can be modification. That's an interesting point. Of course, we all know that job interviews are an extremely inexact science, which is to some extent why many of them are being replaced by psychological evaluations, where you sort of sit a kind of exam about how you behave with a professional human resources firm. Is that fairer? It's probably, again, another way to avoid you appearing to smile a lot, even though it's not your natural thing to do. Again, the further you go down the psychological evaluation route, the more you're, you're trying to tease out the innate person behind the screen of what they're pretending to be. So that brings us to free will and the extent to which genes control free will or our ability to intentionally do something. 
it's one of the great conundrums of life. It's one I certainly wrestle with and don't resolve entirely to my own satisfaction. The fact that there is something called me inside me, which can cause me to do whatever I like at any one point, is not completely a prisoner of my past or of my instincts. Where is that coming from? And who is it? And how did it get there? I don't think that it's a bunch of particular genes, and I don't think there's any sense in which looking through the genome will shed an awful lot of light on exactly where it's coming from, because I do think that this is one where we will need to step outside what we find intuitively easy to understand, uh, and we'll have to think in terms of how genes, which are motivations for us, if you like, they set us up to behave in certain ways, how they interact with our experiences, and our experiences interact with our genes. So it's a circular system, and somewhere in that circle comes volition, comes free will, if you like. It's not a linear process where genes lead to behavior which gives us the way we are. I mean, Spinoza said that the only difference between human beings and a stone rolling down a hill is that the stone has no illusion that it's in charge of its own destiny. I don't think that's fair because I do think that we, we are in charge of our own destiny. And yet, if we have causes, if we can locate the reasons people behave in certain ways, then to that extent, we're narrowing the field of free will. So it's a very difficult conundrum. What areas of genetic study are you investigating now? It's a good question what I'm moving on to now, but I'm afraid the answer is quite a dull one, which is that having just finished a book on this subject, I'm still very interested in all that matters on this subject and I'm following it up. Um, I am very interested in a lot else that's going on in genetics. I think the whole story of RNA, the DNA's cousin, which turns out to have a much more interesting role in the cell, in the organism than we realized, and may prove to be a very important therapeutic tool in attacking perhaps even cancers is a very exciting one. I also think the whole question of how and why we age is something that genetics is beginning to shed some very, very interesting light on. Well, Matt Ridley, author of Nature Via Nurture, I want to thank you very much for joining us on Radio Curious. And before we close, I'd like to ask you to tell us about an interesting book that you've read lately. Well, I'm afraid I'm just going to pick the book I, I finished last night because it's a very good book and it's nothing to do with genetics. It's called Dot Con instead of Dot Com and it's written by John Cassidy and it's a history of the madness that overtook the financial markets and indeed the whole internet industry in the late 90s and into the year 2000. And I think we'll look back on this bubble very much like some of the crazy financial manias of the past it's very interesting to read an instant history of it, and John Cassidy has done a very good job of pulling together the story of it. Say the name again for us, please. It's Dot Con, D-O-T-C-O-N. So he's saying that it was a con, not a com, <laughs> if you like, and we were all conned. Well, Matt Ridley, thanks very much for joining us on Radio Curious. Thank you for having me on the show. Matt Ridley is the author of Nature Via Nurture, genes, experience, and what makes us human. The book he finds interesting is Dot Con by John Cassidy. Copies of this and other editions of Radio Curious are available. There are over 750 archives on our website, 
RadioCurious.org. And I'm honored to tell you that Radio Curious is now part of the collection at the Library of Congress. We appreciate your cards, ideas, and letters, and do enjoy hearing from you. The email is curious at RadioCurious.org. The postal address is 700 West Smith Street, Ukiah, California, 95482. The phone is 707-621-5075. Ignacio Ayala is the assistant producer. I'm host and producer, Barry Vogel. Thank you for listening.